Really glad to be here with you. If I, had a chan- if I haven't had a chance to meet you, let me add my welcome to the one I hope you just received. My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace, and it is my privilege and pleasure to, to uh, bring you God's Word today. And so we have been in a series in 1 Samuel, and after taking a couple of weeks off, we're back. 1 Samuel, and we're going to cover two full chapters today, chapter 21 and chapter 22. Um, I'm going to start because we're covering, we're, we're, we're not going to miss the forest for the trees is what I'm saying. So one, we're going to cover a lot. We're going to do it in broad strokes because there's things that come out of the scriptures when you're looking at these larger chunks. Um, we're going to start sending out the scripture text in the weekly email beforehand as well so that you can read it before you come. And if you don't get the weekly email, you should. So you can go to our website and sign up for it there. So 1 Samuel 21 and 22, uh, the story thus far, David is the anointed king of Israel. David is our hero. Saul however, is the king on the throne. And Saul is a madman. And he is trying to kill David. First, we saw that he was trying to kill David secretly, but then he went public. And now David is on the run, and he's running into the wilderness. Up until this point, uh, David has been a man of character, and faith, and courage, but over the next few weeks, we'll see him challenged in ways that he's never been challenged before. He'll be in a place where he is alone, isolated, in need, and desperate, and that's a dangerous combo for making good decisions, and so he's going to make decisions for the first time that we're going to look in and say, David, what were you thinking? The pressure of a new crisis exposes that David has a long way to go. Being in the place of crisis is also the thing that will forge the character in David that he will need to be Israel's true king. David is sent into the wilderness And the wilderness is a place of danger, it's a place of uncertainty, it's a place of testing, it's a place of trial, but we will also see that it is a place of trust, it is a place of provision, it's a place where trust is formed and where character is forged. And we're given these stories of David in the wilderness so that we can learn to help in our own, to live in our own wilderness seasons. Our wilderness may not look like a literal desert or a night in a cave. Our deserts look like hospital rooms. They look like divorce papers. They look like middle school. Crushed dreams. Seasons of grief when we're caught in a mess of our own making. Seasons that are confusing and painful. 
It was that kind of season for David. But in seeing what God is up to in David's life, the hope is that we get a sense of what he's up to in ours. In seeing how he provides for David in the wilderness, we get a sense of how he might be providing for us. From now until the end of 1 Samuel, we get 15 wilderness stories. And we begin with the first four today. Four scenes in which David interacts with different characters. And we see seven ways that God provides for David. Four scenes, seven provisions. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, I ask for your spirit to come. And we each could probably name what our wilderness is in this moment. And we pray for the eyes to see how you might be providing for us. And to sense the character you might be forging in us. I pray that we would see that. In the strong name of Jesus, I pray these things. Amen. All right, David's on the run. He's just ran away from Saul and Gibeah, and he runs two miles. And the first place he goes is to the temple of the Lord. And we might expect him to go to the temple of the Lord. He's a man of faith. And what might we expect David to do at the temple of the Lord? Pray? Yeah. Worship? Sure. Seek God's face? Gain perspective, strengthen his soul. That's what we might expect a man of faith to do. But that's not what David does. Instead of settling his heart and seeking the Lord's face, we find that he begins to run ahead of God and take things into his own hands. Verse 1. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? And so David ends up on the doorstep of the temple. The temple has moved from Shiloh to Nob and he knocks on the door and who answers but Ahimelech, the priest. You shouldn't know Ahimelech, no one does. He trembled to meet David, and he asked, why are you alone, and why is no one with you? Here's the thing about David. He was famous. He was also in charge of a thousand soldiers. Uh, He never came alone. You heard David coming. He was like Prince Ali. He traveled with an entourage. He didn't just pop up somewhere you knew when he was arrived. So if he was alone, knocking on the door, something must be wrong. And so what does David do? How does he answer Halimelech? He begins to bend the truth. Verse 2. And David said to Halimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter. He's totally lying right now. And said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with a young man for such and such a place. 
Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. Now, everything that that dude just said was a lie. The king has sent me on a secret mission. I can't tell you about it. And I'm not alone. There's some young men with me, and I'm going to meet them at such and such a place. It's the old, I'm out on a secret mission ploy. And, uh, and do you have any bread? Which, they're two miles away from where they would have left from. Uh, how does an elite fighting force not leave with enough bread for their mission? Who knows? And so, why would he lie to Elimelech? Maybe he's just trying to get what he wants. Maybe he's trying to give Ahimelech some plausible deniability, should Saul come and ask him why he might have helped David. We don't know. We just know the priest's answer, verse 4. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us. As always when we go on an expedition, the vessels of the young man are holy, even as when it is on an ordinary journey. How much more today will the vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Man, these stories are the ones you get to in your quiet time, and you're like, what did that just say? Well, here is what it, I hope it said. And here's the priest, and he's pretty confused by the situation. The most powerful general in the land is looking for bread from me. Really? And Elimelech looks around and says, well, this isn't Costco. This isn't Hy-Vee. I don't really have that kind of, that kind of stuff on hand. But the one thing I do have is the 12 loaves of bread called the bread of the presence. This was consecrated bread put in the sanctuary every week, baked fresh, put in the holy place in the sanctuary to symbolize to the priests how God would always provide for his people. So 12 loaves of bread symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel, symbolizing that bread from heaven was always available for God's people. And he says, we have that bread. And on every Sabbath, the bread would get switched out and the priests would get the old bread as if weak old bread was a great reward. (laughs) So the priest is now torn. I have these 12 loaves of bread, but only priests can eat the bread. Do I withhold tradition in the law uh, or do I give bread to this person who is in need, a child of God who is so desperate. And what he decides to do is break the letter of the law to uphold the spirit of the law. And he says, I'll meet you halfway. Are you, have you kept yourself ceremoniously clean? And David says, whether he's lying or not, we don't know. But he said, yeah, me and the boys, there's no boys. Me and the boys, we've kept ourselves clean. We're always ceremoniously clean. And so Elimelech gives David the bread 
of the presence. So David has been lying. He's bending the truth. He's not acting like himself. It's almost like he has a sense of amnesia, forgetting how God has been so faithful to him, has provided for him in the past. But think about what God gives him here. Almost like a wake-up call. It's not just bread. It's the bread of the presence. And what is God trying to communicate to David? The priest, after all, represents God to David. And he's giving David provision. Provision that he doesn't deserve. It's a merciful provision. Bread that stood for the, as a quiet witness to how God sustains his people. With bread from heaven. Bread they cannot see. How he is always committed to supplying their needs. Jesus, of course, identifies himself in the New Testament as the bread of life. The true bread of the presence of God. There to satisfy hungry souls. This is the first provision that David gets. Why are you trying to take things into your own hands? I give to you all the time when you don't deserve it. David, it's like the voice of a loved one trying to wake David up. Let's see how David responds to this little interlude. Verse 7. Oh, wait. Before we see how David responds, we get verse 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul, oh no, was there that day. Detained before the Lord, his name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdmen. Now, Doeg sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for worry. Now, this is a little bit of dramatic foreshadowing. If this was a movie, the shot would move over to Doeg, sitting in a dark corner, smoking a cigar. And he's paying attention to David and to what he's doing. And uh, it's just, uh, you know, it's like we, we need to make a note that Doeg was around while David was lying. And uh, we'll, we'll meet this character later. In verse 8, the camera turns back from Halimelech to David. Then David said to Halimelech, Then have you here a spear or a sword in hand? For I have brought neither my sword or my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. I was on a real secret mission with my elite force, but we forgot bread and weapons. It's like the plumber showing up to your house and being like, can I use your tools? So David got the bread, but he didn't get the message. Um... And having got bread, provision, he thought, well, what else can I get out of the deal? Do you have any weapons? As if that's what the temple was known for. Just getting weapons. I haven't brought my swords or any weapons. The task is urgent. What do you got? And what happens next is amazing. It's another symbolic act of God's provision and another opportunity for David to wake up and see clearly. Verse 9. And the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, 
whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. So there does happen to be a sword there, but look at whose sword it was. It was Goliath's sword, the giant that David defeated by not wielding a sword, but by having faith in God. Out of all the places for this relic, the symbol of God's faithfulness and power, it just happened to be where David was when he was so desperate. The symbol of God's victory, and think about what it meant. 14-year-old peach-faced David defeated Goliath. And guess what the last thing he said before he defeated him? This is 1 Samuel 17. Victor will remember this. He preached on it. He said, I declare this over Goliath and over all the troops. Over all those who are gathered here, you will now know that it is not by sword or spear that God saves, for the battle is the Lord's. It is not by sword or spear that you are going to save yourself. The battle is his. That was the last thing that Goliath heard. The last word that the troops heard before David defeated the giant. David declaring that God is going to fight for me. I have nothing to worry about. I don't trust in spears. I can use stones. I trust in the power of God's name. And here is David. Now he's desperate, trying to cling to anything for a sense of control. He's running out ahead of God. God has provided for him every step of the way. Provided for his physical needs. Provided for him in the midst of his enemies. But he's kind of trying to take it into his own hands. And here he gets this reminder. It's not you, it's me. What you need most of all is trust in me. And notice where the sword is at. It's behind the ephod. That detail is there for a reason. What is the ephod? Well, no one knows what an ephod is. An ephod is what the priests used to inquire after the Lord. It's what you did when you sought God's face. You went to a priest and you didn't ask for a sword. You asked for prayer. You asked for wisdom. You asked for discernment. God is making him have to push the ephod away to get to the sword The sword, which is a symbol itself of God's faithfulness, that David didn't need a sword. Will he get the point? He says, that's a good sword, I'll take it. (laughs) It was probably too big for him to use anyway. Goliath was a big guy. Well, he used it once before. You would expect David to see the sword and say, right, I'm good. I don't need a sword. You keep it. You keep the bread. God will provide for me. God will protect me. He is my refuge. This is God's battle too. But instead he takes the relic, doesn't seek God's face, and he continues to run. 
Two means of provision thus far, both symbolic, the bread and the sword. That was scene one, David and the priest. Here's scene two, David and the king. Verse 10, and David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. So David has already made a mess of things, but we're going to see it goes from bad to worse. He takes this weapon and he seeks refuge with the king of Gath. Now, if we were Hebrews at the time, we would start to laugh. But the humor is lost on us because we don't know where Gath is or what Gath is. But Gath is a city in Philistia. And that's the same group of people that David has been fighting against almost his whole life. So this is not a community that would have been warm to David. But he's not only in Philistia, he's in Gath. And Gath is the hometown of one particular Philistine. It's the hometown of Goliath. And so David is so desperate that he now shows up on his enemy's doorstep with Goliath's sword saying, do you mind if I stay here for a while? It's like if some Russian general showed up in Kiev or something and said, hey, can I, do you have a place for me to stay? David isn't seen clearly. He's showing up. And who knows? Maybe he wants to call a truce. Maybe, maybe he thought he'd go unnoticed. But we know that that's not true because he gets noticed right away. Verse 11. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. So two things about this. They recognize him as the king of the land, which isn't true. But he has been so successful in the past that they mistook him for the king. And for David, it would have been a reminder that he was anointed king of Israel. God was going to make him king. Would he have faith in that? But then they sing the words of the song. Do you remember the song that made Saul so jealous? In the first place, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. The song too would have been a reminder of how faithful God has been to David. So from the mouth of his enemies, even in this dangerous place, David is getting this reminder, I'm the anointed one of God. God has been so faithful to me. How does David respond? Verse 12. And David took these words to heart and was courageous. No. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, behold, you see the man is mad. Then why have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen? That you have brought this, that's funny, right? 
that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So David pretends to be insane. And that's how we know that the Bible is true. You can't make this stuff up. He pretends to be insane, acting like a madman, letting saliva even roll down his beard. This 14-year-old courageous warrior is now reduced to a drooling madman. And I love the king's response. Am I so short of madmen that you come to bring me another one? I have enough crazy people. Don't we all have enough crazy people? Thank you, Akish. I agree. And he sends David out and he leaves. Um, Now here's the thing. How did David escape? Was he really that good of an actor? Was it because that plan was so awesome? I'm guessing that his acting was about as good as his lying. It was God's faithfulness. And David recognizes this later when he, he, he writes psalms about this event. And he said, God, you delivered me. It wasn't me. God delivered me. Despite my confusion despite the fact that I had terrible ideas I had gotten myself into a mess and you delivered me so for those keeping track thus far there has been four ways that God has provided for David despite David's unfaithfulness the bread the sword the words of the song and now this deliverance But God isn't done because he's about to give something David very, he's going to give David something very precious. He's going to give him a community. Scene three, David and the cave. Starting in verse one of the next chapter. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all of his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress... And everyone who was in debt and everyone who was embittered in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them and they were with him about 400 men. So David escapes to a cave alone, but he's not alone for long. Soon he's joined by a community, and what a surprising group it was. First, it was just his family, his parents and his brother, and that makes sense because they were likely targets for Saul's wrath because of their relationship to David, so it makes sense that they would join him. We don't know how he found him, if David sent out word or if they just knew what kind of cave David would hide in, but they find David, but then Others begin to join. And I love how these folks are described. Everyone who was in distress or in debt or in bittered in soul. Those in debt, distress, and discontent. I love it. It was like a grumpy island of misfit toys. And here's the thing is that this isn't unusual for God. This is the sort of people that God commonly uses. To form companies of believers, disciples, and worshipers. It's what 
It's, it's who he called in the beginning when he called Israel. He said, you weren't the biggest or fanciest group of people. You were actually a really small group of people. But I called you. It's, what, it's the community that Jesus forms around him. The hurting, the broken, the bitter in soul, the discontent, the in debt. It's still who Jesus forms around us. The, the church is often disappointing to people. You know what's disappointing? The first time you go to your small group. <laughs> and you're like, I'm just being honest. You're like, this is the people? It's like the bitter people and the discontent people and the in-debt people. But something begins to happen to groups like that who have great need in the wilderness when they begin to forage together and hope together and share together and fight together and love together. A new community is formed and God is forming a new Israel in the wilderness. God has brought this broken but faithful community around David Has God brought a broken but faithful community around you? The passage ends by focusing on one particular individual, Gad the prophet. Verse 5, Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now, who is Gad? This is the first time we're hearing about Gad in the scriptures. We don't know much about Gad. Gad was a prophet. Now, remember, what is the one thing that we thought David would do that he has not done thus far? He hasn't inquired of the Lord. He hasn't sought the Lord's face. He didn't pick up the ephod. He didn't ask the priest to pray for him. We get no sign that he prayed when he was in distress in any of these situations. He has not sought God's word. So what does God do? He brings his word to him in a prophet and just tells him stuff. What a gracious provision. Desperation is no fun, but desperation and silence is unbearable. Being in the wilderness isn't so bad when you can hear your shepherd's voice and know that he is near. And David heard that voice directly through the prophet Gad as we hear his voice through his word in the scriptures. He brings him a prophet. When he wouldn't seek his face, When he wouldn't seek his word, his word seeks him. For those keeping track, David is now given bread, sword, a song, deliverance, community, and God's word. The next thing is he's given, he sees the consequences of his actions. Because his lie had consequences. Scene four, David and Saul. And I'm going to summarize this bit. You can go home and read it. And check my work just to make sure I'm telling you the truth here. This occurs in verses 6 through the end of chapter 22. I'll try to summarize. The scene cuts to Saul. Saul's steaming. Saul's angry. Saul's still focused on killing David. 
And David is evading Saul. And so Saul goes to his servants and says, has anyone seen him? You're all traitors. Nobody who's faithful to me is telling me where David is. But then remember Doeg? Sitting in the corner, smoking his cigar. He comes out of the shadows now. Doeg, the creeper guy in the temple. And he says, I've seen David. I saw him in Nob. I saw him speaking to Halimelech, the priest there. He fed David. He blessed David. He gave David weapons. And Saul burns with anger. And he calls Elimelech and all the priests of that village before him. And he says, why did you give aid to my enemy? And you know what Elimelech says? I didn't know he was your enemy. Which was true. David had lied. He said, who of all your servants is loyal as David? I thought David was helping you. That's what he told me. And so he tries to convince Saul of the truth. David is a good guy. But it's hard to convince, talk and convince crazy sometimes. You know what I mean? And Saul's just gone too far. And so he, Saul turns to his people and he says, kill all the priests. But the faithful Israelites, it's just one thing they will not do. They will not touch what is holy and sacred. And so who does he turn to? Doeg, the Edomite. And Doeg says, I'll do it. And he slaughters 85 priests that day. And then Saul orders that his men go into the village and murder every Israelite man, woman, and child that's in that city. Saul's heart is so darkened. He was a terror to the Gentiles. Now he's a terror to his own people. But there is still light in the darkness because one priest escapes and makes his way to David. But one of the, this is verse 20. But one of the sons of Elimelech, the son of Aitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. So the priest tells him what happened. And David wasn't solely responsible for this, but he did. He was responsible. He had lied. Partly this was the consequence of his sin, and David takes ownership. And he says, I'm responsible. He doesn't blame Saul. He takes responsibility. And this is finally when David begins to come to his senses. There's all this provision, but it's when he sees the consequences of his sin that he begins to be changed. And how do we know he begins to be changed? He begins to care about others more than himself. What does David finally look like here? A king, a shepherd. He says to the priest, I know you're not alone. I'm going to protect you. 
I'm going to guard you. Come with me. David had lost his way, but God had been faithful to David and he had provided him a prophet and now a priest. And he was a king. Prophet, priest, and king and 400 broken people that will become the seedbed of hope for Israel and ultimately a new kingdom, new hope, and it's sprouting up in the wilderness. That's the story. What does it mean for us? I have four questions for you to ask yourself in application. First, what is the wilderness you find yourself in? What is the wilderness you find yourself in? Middle school? Divorce papers? Brokenheartedness? A mess of your own making? Second, where are you tempted to go in your desperation? David was exposed, afraid and alone. And just like David, we may feel that way. And when we do, we so often run to the wrong places. And we try to take matters into our own hands. Maybe for you, you don't try to get a sword or find shelter from another king. Maybe you chase after substances. Or you go further into debt. Or you play the blame game. Where do you go in your desperation? David's life teaches us to run to God. Whether or not that's a truth that's easy to hear, that's the truth in the text. That the most sure place in your life is to be desperate in front of God, to be needy in front of Him. Fourteen years of living in the desert will teach David the one lesson that we need to learn, that God is wholly trustworthy. Where do you go in your desperation? Have you sought the Lord's face? Have you prayed? Third question. What are the graces that you might be missing in this season? God provides for his desperate people, but it doesn't always look like victory trumpets. Sometimes it's quiet. His, the tokens of his help are hardly obvious. Five loaves of bread, the backside of the Gath city limit sign as you're running out of town, <laughs> a faithful priest, God's word, a broken community. Fourth question, what character might he be forging in you along the way? That's a good one. I'll let you think about it. Ooh, I have a hidden fifth question. How does the reality of Jesus give you hope? Because Jesus is the bread of life. God gave Christ to you and sent him into the wilderness of our own sin and experience. 
And there he trusted God fully and won the battle. He made all the right choices. He surrounded himself by ragamuffins. (laughs) And he formed, finally, a new Israel. He defeated sin and death for him. And he is the ultimate sign that God is with us now and always. Two chapters of scripture in the book, God is faithful to us. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being with us in the wilderness. Help us to name our wilderness, Lord. Help us to discern where we commonly go in our desperation. Open our eyes to see the many hidden graces, the ways that you're providing us in the midst of our confusion and pain. Open our eyes to the way that you are deepening our lives and forging character in us along the way. And point us always to Jesus, our bread from heaven, our sword, our community, our hope, our righteousness, our King, who leads us through the shadow of death to the place of everlasting life. And may that always give us hope. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.